The Burroughs of Berea is a conversational podcast. We study the Bible and we talk about it. Not all of us are of the same faith, and one of us doesn't actually have a faith. And that's wonderful. We all love one another, and we're going to continue to talk about these things. The things we believe in and the things we believe about what we read in the Bible. Not all of these are necessarily true. Some of it is opinion and speculation. Thank you for listening and speculating with us. There you go. That was good. Yes. (laughs) You are listening to the Burroughs of Berea. Well, welcome back to the Burroughs of Berea. I am Rick Welch, and to my left is Rick Eye Candy Carter. Oh, yeah. (laughs) No, but we do have somebody who is back. Oh, this is exciting. Ralph Hicks. Represent. Hey, man. He's the subtlest represent ever. Yeah. How y'all doing? Doing good, man. Find the glasses, Rocket Man, Andy Bishop. I got to go reset Ralph. And to my right, Cherry the Annihilator, Lewis. Hello. How you doing, Cherry? I'm doing good. Good. Well, I got to say this. I know that uh, when Sarita and Josh can't be here, they text me today about how hurt and angry that they were that they could not be in the studio oh, today man. because they both are huge fans Woo! of our guest. And uh, obviously, I'm a fan of his as well. And so yes. we're super excited to have him here. So let me tell you who we're, it is that we got. We're finally making it to the top. <laughs> making it. We made it to the top. <laughs> we're only halfway there. So Douglas Wilson, um, if if I know a lot of our listeners will know who he is. So let me give you a little bit of background. If you don't know who he is, he is a conservative, reformed, and evangelical theologian. He is pastor at Christ Church in Moscow. Moscow, Idaho, and is a faculty member at New St. Andrews College, as well as an author and speaker. Wilson is known for his writing on classical Christian education, reform theology, as well as general cultural commentary. He has written several books, including Reforming Marriage, Recovering the Lost Tools of Learning, Standing on the Promises, a Handbook of Biblical Child Rearing, Future Men, Ride Sally Ride, Sex Rules, a novel. I'm really interested in that. I haven't read that. I want to get that book. Mere Christendom, among others. And also is the author of Blog and Mayblog, uh, <laughs> Theology That Bites Back. I love that title. It's fantastic. Yeah. It's a blog and his YouTube channel where he discusses current events and other issues regarding life, culture, and the Christian faith. And something that I know about him is he is featured in the documentary film Collision, documenting his debates with anti-theist Christopher Hitchens on their promotional tour for the book, Is Christianity Good for the World? Douglas Wilson, thank you so much for being on our program. Yeah, thank you for having me. Absolutely. We are in Western North Carolina. I assume you are in Idaho right now? Yes. Yeah, well. I just count the seconds. Yeah. Between when we speak and when he responds, yeah. <laughs> and then I just I just use math to figure out a circle. And, uh, right. Assume he's not in the Atlantic Ocean. Well, we know that you are a very busy person, and uh, I do want to thank you. I really mean that that you would come and be with us uh, on our program. I'd send out an happy email. To, happy to do it. Yeah, thank you. And we sent out an email to you, and your staff got right back with me, and I just wanted to hear. Your personal testimony, that's one of the things we started doing this year, uh, actually two years ago. Um, we wanted to hear what God did in each individual's lives, you know, whether it was a person that came up Baptist or Presbyterian or w- wherever they came up. We just wanted to hear the story because when God, you know, comes into someone's life, uh, it, they could be a child at the age of six or it could be somebody that's in their 50s. It was late in life for me. And so, I love to hear those stories, and it 
I think that it edifies the church. I really do. I think when people hear what God does, it helps. And so thank you for being willing to share your testimony here. Sure. Um, So go ahead. I was going to say, I always ask every guest this first question, uh, and then I will let you take it from there. Can you tell me, to the best of your ability, your earliest memory of when you heard the name Jesus Christ? I can remember when I first called on the Lord. I was four years old, and I'm sure that I heard the name Jesus Christ many, many times prior to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, my pa- my parents were very uh, consistent, devout uh, evangelicals, sort of evangelicals of the old school, um, but they lived consistent Christian lives. My father had been a naval officer, and he met my mother, who was a Canadian missionary to Japan during the Korean War. So uh, that's how they that's how they met up. They got married in Japan when my dad was still in the Navy. And then uh, when he got out of the Navy, it was to go into Christian service, uh, uh, literature ministry, bookstores, and not Jesus junk stores, but evangelistic um, bookstores. Mm -hmm. And and so I was four years old, and uh, I, I was talking to my mother, she was doing laundry, I believe, in the basement, and I re- remember that the tile was white and black tile. Wow! And and I asked her, I, w- I wanted to become a Christian, hmm. so she explained the gospel to me, and we prayed, and that's and if she had not written that event down and us gone over it, I would have this memory of that happening, but. What what you know? Yeah. What was that about? <laughs> right. So um, I my parents were uh, Baptistic, and I grew up in Annapolis, Maryland. That was my hometown, and I grew up in a Southern Baptist church. Hmm. I was uh, I went forward when I was ten, and uh, was baptized in a Christmas Eve service in 1963. So I was four when I called on the Lord and. 10 when I was baptized, then continued to grow and flourish. And it was a great home, great childhood. It was just very, very good. Growing up in Annapolis, and my father had been a Navy man, the idea of doing anything but joining the Navy had never occurred to me. So I joined the Navy when I was a senior in high school. And after graduation, did a delayed entry, then went into the Navy. And this is part of my testimony because the U.S. Navy is not a bastion of righteousness. No, um, no, what, <laughs> no. <laughs> in the Navy, <laughs> <laughs> whatever the recruiter tells you, it's not true. Um, <laughs> so I figured out pretty quickly that out in the Navy on my own, uh, my Christianity was going to have to be mine. I couldn't be doing anything at second hand at all. So my faith had never been seriously challenged while I was growing up. I was in the government schools, and so there were those sorts of challenges, but they weren't really uh, momentum. It wasn't really significant until I was out on my own, having to deal with all these ungodly sailors in every direction. Mm-hmm. So when when you were around that, did you feel like 
So I, I imagine you're talking about drinking, carousing, women, the things yeah. that, you know, all of the things that a young man would want to do, you know, and maybe, right. you know, I don't know when you say not being, I grew up in a household where drinking was very common and yelling and cussing and screaming. And so whenever I became an adult, it was not unusual for me to be in those circles, but I imagine for you, it was right. Yeah, it was a real, sh- it was, um, there was a certain element of culture shock where, man, you know, good grief, look at these guys. And uh, so what I would do is when I came to a new uh, duty station, one of the things I would do is let somebody know at the at this new uh, station that I was a Christian. Mm-hmm. And we're, if sailors are very curious about the new guy. And word would spread all through the, you know, oh, great, we got a, another Jesus freak. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> you know but, the, but the advantage of that is if you let them know right away, then they hold you to it. Mm. Right. So uh, what you, the last thing you want to do is go into a situation like that, prepared to keep your head down, not tell anybody. Mm-hmm. So I was sort of an out there Christian, and that's where I learned to sort of stand on my own feet as a Christian. That's really smart. Between- that's really smart. I think that's probably a mistake a lot of people make. Because if there's a certain set of rules that you would like to be treated by, you really need to let people have an idea of what those rules are. Because what people yeah. usually do is they don't mention it, and then they get irritated when they don't get treated by the set of rules that they never told anybody about. Right. Right? right. I mean, that's... That's emotionally, that's strong from one sense, and it's also just smart. And it's a double-edged sword because, well, like you said, I mean, it's like a way to hold yourself accountable. These are the beliefs that you have. You tell them, now you're going to be in these situations where you have to practice your faith. Right, right. People are going to be expecting it of you. Yeah, and real, real time in the Navy, for real. The first rule they give is that they call you a Jesus freak. Yeah. (laughs) So you do get a little leeway there in the very beginning. Sure. One time to... Illustrate one time we were in the MAD. I was in the submarine service and um, we were, I was on a diesel boat at the time. And so we were in the Mediterranean and we were on the surface transiting and we were going to go into, I think it was somewhere in Greece and uh, go in. And some of the sailors came to me and to let me know that when we got into port, they were going to take me in hand and take me ashore and and get me glued, screwed, and tattooed. You know? <laughs> <laughs> We're going to really make you a freak now. <laughs> yeah. And it was really funny how it turned out. And I, I It was all joking. Uh, but I said, well, you're going to have a fight on your hands. We're going to have a, we're going to have a brawl if you try that. And so, but then our orders got changed and we had to go out to sea again for, we, we didn't go to port. We had to turn around and go out and do some operation or other. And so I went hunted, hunted those guys down and said, if you guys ever want to see land again, you have to leave me. <laughs> yeah, God's providence. They're going to put you to it, so God just kept you in the ocean. So be nice to the Christian. <laughs> you have to leave me alone. Yeah. That's good. So uh, during your time in the Navy and, and throughout, can I ask how long were you in the Navy? Just under four years. Just under four years. And you were in the submarine service, so you were underwater yeah, a, a lot, lot, huh? And he said yeah, diesel. I, I, well, I was on a diesel boat for a year and a half and a, a fast attack nuke for two years. I calculated once that I spent about three quarters of a year submerged. 
So wow, um, that's a that's long, a, long that time. Expl- that explains a lot. That explains a lot. <laughs> I have an uncle that was on subs, and he did the nuclear. He ended up. He dealt with the the engines, and he ended up doing like a yeah. nuclear refueling of uh, refueling of nuclear power plants. After that, oh wow! Right. So yeah, it was neat. Yeah. Sorry, that's a random do, aside. <laughs> do, do subs yeah. have to dodge the four corners of the earth? <laughs> do do, do, do subs what? Have to dodge the four corners of the earth. He's, he's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you have to you have to go around him real fast. <laughs> <laughs> So take us from that point. Uh, you're in the Navy and bring us from there to the present. I'm really curious to see how you're, how you're, how you got into the ministry and how you became Doug Wilson. So uh, what happened was I, I mentioned before that my, my dad was involved in literature ministry. So when he got out of the Navy, he was just sold on Christian books and he opened a Christian bookstore in, Anna- in Annapolis, Maryland. And so we, we kids grew up in the world of Christian literature. So my dad wasn't a pastor, but he was a very effective evangelist working out of uh, this bookstore. And uh, he wound up moving to Moscow, Idaho. I graduated from high school. So I grew up in Annapolis, spent a few years in Ann Arbor, Michigan, where he op- my dad opened a store. And then he moved out to Idaho. I helped them move out, and then I went in the Navy from there. And while they were getting established in Idaho, I was in the Navy. When I was getting out of the Navy, I thought, well, I can declare residency anywhere, and I'll just declare residency in Idaho. I'll go to school on the GI Bill at University of Idaho, catch up with my parents. And then my plan was that I was going to go off to another college town and start a, a Christian bookstore like my father. So his, his strategy, basically what it boils down to is, uh, I have to back up. That's fine. In the sixties, my dad wrote a book called principles of war and he was a Naval Academy graduate. He was it a book on princi- marriage. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. No. No. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. He, uh, applied the, the principles of military conflict to spiritual warfare. So mobility, surprise, concentration, objective, all of those things. How does that apply to spiritual warfare? Well, basically, in a battle or a war, a decisive point is a target that is simultaneously strategic and feasible. Um, It's important. Strategic means it's important. And if you take it, the battle is yours or or the war is yours. And... The second part is it's feasible. It's possible for you to do. So uh, to illustrate, New, New York City is strategic. If we took New York for Jesus, it'd be all over. Hmm. But it's, it's not feasible, mm-hmm. right? Or we could, we could take Elk River, Idaho for Jesus in two weekends, um, how, however long it took to unload the moving vans. But when we were all done, all we'd have is Elk River. We, it's not strategic. It's feasible, but it's not strategic. Mm-hmm. My dad decided that the the decisive points in North America were major universities in small towns. So the small town made it feasible. The university made it important. And he then found out that Moscow, Idaho, and Pullman, Washington were two small towns 
eight miles apart in two different states, and each one had a major university in the town. Mm-hmm. So he moved here. So that was his that was his thinking. My thought when I was in the Navy was I'm gonna I'll get out, catch up with my folks, get my degree, and I've majored in philosophy because I was planning on doing evangelism, apologetics, that sort of thing. And I thought, well, I'll just get my degree and then I'll go open a bookstore in a place like Laramie, you know, uh, uh, a university town that's a small town, mm-hmm. you know, help my dad with his mission. And so I, I met my, my wife the year before I got out of the Navy. We got married within a few months after I got out of the Navy and we started having kids right away. Mm-hmm. And while, while I was going to school and that brought the question of Christian education up front and center. And one day Nancy said to me, Doug, I can't see handing our oldest daughter, Becca. I can't see handing her over to someone we don't know saying, here she is teach her about life and God and everything. Uh, and I, I didn't agree. I didn't know anything about education at the time, but I knew that I agreed with my wife about that. Mm-hmm. And so I said, well, don't worry, rashly, I said, we'll have a Christian school started by the time Becca hits kindergarten. So what happened basically was as I was going through school, we were having kids, we started Logos School, and in the meantime, I had wound up inadvertently in the ministry because I was a guitar player and a a student song leader at this startup church that a Jesus, it was a Jesus people type uh, church. Mm -hmm. And it was just, it just started up and I was a student leading the music and a year and a half into it, the man who was doing the preaching announced one Sunday that he had gotten a job in another town, another city, and he'd be gone the next Sunday and good luck everybody. And he was gone. And I was up front with a guitar. So oh, I didn't I mention pre- that he's also a guitar player. Yeah. Let's add that. To who, the who, what did, uh, uh, who was the last musician we had? I'm trying to form a band. Uh, yeah, I think uh, it's uh, Ken uh, Birding. Huh? Ken Birding, He's I think. He's a bass, right? Yeah. Yeah, so we got a bass player and a guitar player. Now we got a bass player and a guitar uh, player. We got to keep looking. Uh, yeah. I'm a rhythm guitarist. Not, yeah. not a lead I, guitarist. That's fine. More important than lead. There's no rhythm, there's no need for lead. That's true. That's a good point. <laughs> so, so you're in the ministry. Uh, so I, I, I preached the next Sunday and started preaching. That was in 1977. Uh, when I was born. Mm. <sighs> Me too. Mm. <laughs> mm. So that I've been preaching and ministering to the same long-suffering group of saints ever since. And what, <laughs> and what ha- but what happened was I, I got my BA in philosophy and then I went on and got my MA in philosophy. And so I was basically done. By that time, the church that I was I was pastoring had grown to a couple hundred people, and it was still in the liftoff stage. And I was in no position to leave and go to seminary. It was still a Jesus people type of operation, very loose and still uh, not quite organized. Mm-hmm. And so when I was done with school, I thought, well, I can't get away to seminary. I'd gotten two years of Greek in as part of my BA. And I'd grown up in a Christian home that had a, a really good grasp of fundamentals of Christian living. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, I'll just have to get my theology and all of that stuff through a program of rigorous reading right? and like on the job uh, training. So I was out of school. I began to read diligently. That would be in 1979. 
So up to this point, I was what you would call a conservative evangelical uh, Baptistic guy mm-hmm. and sort of post-World War II evangelicalism, which is what my dad was. And I was very much in that mold, in that stamp. So I began to read and there were a series of paradigm shifts that happened in the mid eighties. I became post-millennial mm-hmm. as a result of my reading. Then in 1988, I became a Calvinist. Then in 93, I became a paedo-baptist mm-hmm. and came into roughly the Westminster Confession of Faith, which is where I am uh, now, mm-hmm. so since, since the 90s. And then the next other significant thing was I didn't write my first book until I was almost 40. So that, that would have been in the uh, early 90s. And... But once that started, once that book took hold, I began to write like a crazy man. Mm-hmm. And then in 2004, when the internet showed up, I began blogging. I, so I, I began the, using the blog as the discipline for getting thoughts on, not on paper, but onto ones and zeros. Sure. After Al Gore turned the internet on? That's right. Al Gore. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I, went to, I went to him and asked him, please... Please turn yeah. on the internet, sir. Please turn on the internet. <laughs> and George Bush said, no, it's internets. <laughs> Intranets. Wow. So so by this point in 2004, you are, um, you, you've written books and now you're on the internet, you're blogging. And um, during this time, and you said you had kids and, and all this, you haven't got into debating at this point, have you? Well, let's see. I may have had one debate prior to this in uh in the 80s i'd have to look it up i mm-hmm. i debated i debated gordon stein there was a famous greg bonson stein debate mm-hmm. and whenever whenever that was this was a few months after that because i debated gordon stein also mm-hmm. and then i may have had a scattered debate here and there but it was i've uh, debated uh, an atheist named Eddie Tabosh. Uh, I've debated Dan Barker. I've debated another fellow. I've forgotten his name. And then, of course, Christopher Hitchens. Right. Uh, I wanted to ask about whenever you were studying, um, after you started reading voraciously and decided to change into post, you became a post millennial. Um, right. What was that like for you and for your family? I imagine at this stage, were your parents still part of the, you know, the World War II evangelical and looking yeah. at it? So were you sort of pulling away from them, but were you talking to them at the same time? No, it, that that was actually, that first one was relatively easy hmm. because my dad, after he was converted at the Naval Academy, someone had given him a Schofield Bible hmm. and he was had been reading it but he couldn't get the notes to my, my dad was a very godly Anabaptist type of guy, Mm -hmm. but he couldn't get the notes to add up with what was in the text and he just didn't see it. And so he he gave his Schofield Bible away and he, he walked away from dispensationalism. Now what he thought he was doing was walking away from all, every form of systematic theology entirely. Mm -hmm. So when I became post mill, it wasn't like I was walking away from a pre-mill dispensational upbringing. My parents were just sort of ambivalent about that whole subject. Sure. And I, I had become a non-millennial 
remember I was a pa- I was pastoring at the time, and I remember telling people, "Look, Jesus is coming again. Don't push me." You know, yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's all I that's all I know. So I was probably a non millennialist for two or three years. Mm-hmm. I was doing a lot of reading in the mid eighties on the subject, and it was the one of the weirdest experiences of my life because I was reading a book that I didn't really care for that much. I, the guy had kind of ex, too much, his hermeneutic was a little too gaudy or exuberant, mm-hmm. but I was reading his book and he quoted a verse. He quoted a verse from first Corinthians 15 and it said, for he must reign until he's put all his enemies under his feet. And I read that verse in this book at second hand. And when I read that verse, something snapped in my head. It was like, and I was post-mill. And all these verses that I'd been reading and accumulating, it was like one of those transformer thingies assembling in my head. Mm -hmm. It was all fluttering together. And whoa, that was a lot of fun. Becoming post-mill was a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. Becoming a Calvinist three years later was no fun at all. No. Um, Nice. <laughs> well, yeah. Because becoming post-mill was me coming into the realization that Christians were the winning team, that the gospel is going to be triumphant. It's just exhilarating and upbeat and optimistic, and it was just a lot of fun. Calvinism just humbled my pride. So I fell down the Reformation stairs, hitting my head on every step. Mm-hmm. And, and I've told this story a few times, and it was um, – I, I decided I was going to preach through Romans. So, and I remember telling one of the elders, we had elders by this point, one of the elders, I don't know what I'm going to say when I get to those chapters. And that, that's how I thought of Romans 8 through uh, 11, those chapters. I, I don't know what I'm going to say when I get to those chapters. And when I got there, it was somewhere in chapter 8, chapter 8 or chapter 9, it was somewhere in there. I was preaching through, and I remember I was in the pulpit preaching the message, and I thought something to myself like, oh, what the hell? (laughs) (laughs) Here we go. And I I know you shouldn't uh, think like that while you're preaching, but I just said what it said. So Mm -hmm. instead of trying to dance around it, Mm -hmm. I just said what it said. And then spent a couple of years denying that I was a Calvinist meaning that I hadn't learned it from Calvin, but all I per- did was persuade people I was being disingenuous because they would think, look, pal, we know what a Calvinist is and you are one. Right. <laughs> and so that was, that was humbling and disruptive and kind of a commotion going through. That was, that was probably the most significant paradigm shift. Uh, Pedobaptism was also not a picnic, but it, I don't think it was as much of a root issue as the, uh, as Calvinism was. Can you tell us what pedobaptism is? Oh, yeah. Oh, I was just going to ask that. Because there's some people in here that don't know. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Uh, pedobaptism is the baptism of infants, mm-hmm. infant baptism, mm-hmm. which reminds me of one time Mark Twain, not a generally a theological source, but what Mark Twain was once asked if he believed in infant baptism, and he said, believe in it. I've seen it done. <laughs> That's great. That is, I love Mark Twain. I do too. That is funny. Yeah. So along these journeys, I, I love hearing that coming from you because 
um, a lot of times, you know, a lot of us come into this late at the game, you know, and um, w- that's one of the things I love about testimonies is we're like, oh, okay, so you went on a journey and you haven't always believed the exact same thing the whole time as you grow, uh, you know, no. and and those changes, as you're a pastor of that church, I'm assuming that your congregation is changing along with you? Yes. We've never, by the grace of God, uh, we've never had a church split or a church fight that um, blew things up. Is there only one way. church in town? <laughs> no, <laughs> no, but they did take Mark 24 out of the Bible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so Moscow is about 22,000 people, mm. and Idaho is the size of Great Britain, and 22,000 people were either in the top 10, were either number 10 or 11 in terms of biggest towns mm-hmm. in in Idaho. So it's a thinly populated state and uh, a lot of, uh, a lot of trees up here where we are. And it was the least churched section of the country when it was being settled. So they're the standard main lines and there are a handful of evangelical churches. And then we, we've been growing so much that we've planted a number of uh, services or churches. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there, there are a lot now. Wow. So I think that's amazing too. Like that, where we come from in Western North Carolina, if a I think if a pastor were to say, "Hey, I'm a post millennial now," they would oust them because yeah. we're very uh, in this area. It's it's predominantly premillennial. Yeah, you know, rapture and and with with all of that. And so I think it's remarkable. And I and I do know a couple of people. Josh Sexton was one of them that shared some different eschatological views, and the church stayed with him, which I thought was beautiful as he yeah. was working through it, because that's the point. You, Like you said, you, you they saw you as disingenuous. You weren't trying to be. You just were because you were uh-huh. still learning. I mean, you can't know it all immediately, right? Yeah. And uh, I had the advantage in that we were, I said we began as sort of Jesus people operation. And the state, we had a statement of faith by that point, which I had written. Um, so the everything was still in motion. It wasn't like I was becoming post-mill in a church that had been pre-mill for 115 years. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like that. A number of things were still in flux. Now, you've written countless books, several books. and um, Yeah, several. several. Yeah, several. And I know um, something that I read online, and just, you'll have to forgive me whether we want to talk about it or not. I don't, you know, we don't have to, but I read something about a controversial portion of your ministry called Federal Vision. I don't know anything yeah. about that. Do you care to talk yeah. about it, or well, does that have anything yeah, to do with the the way you he he believes in teaching? I don't. Yes. Know. Um, oh, okay. So um, I'm happy to talk about it. So basically, everything is fair game. You can ask me anything. Okay. Yeah, I, d- okay. I don't know what it is. I just knew that I read that it was controversial. And I, the point of this testimony isn't to come on here and just rip you a new one. <laughs> yeah. You know, I want it to be kind and you know. Yeah, so but here's the short form. Uh, I spoke at a conference in 2002 down in Louisiana, and the name of the conference was Federal Vision. Mm-hmm. Uh, federal, it comes from the, the word federal comes from the Latin word foidus, which means covenant. So it was it was simply a conference on co- like a covenantal vision, having a covenantal vision for life. Mm-hmm. So there were like four different speakers. And about six months after the con- after that conference, there was an internet. It was one of the early internet 
theological controversies. There was a gentleman named John Robbins who uh, attacked us saying that we were denying justification by faith alone. Okay. Which we weren't, but he thought we were. And what it boils down to is the federal vision is a teaching that emphasizes what I call the objectivity of the covenant. Okay. Okay. Meaning that when someone's baptized, you can take a picture of them becoming a Christian. Mm-hmm. Okay. okay. Sure. Um, so Jews know who their people are. Hindus know who their people are. Muslims do know who their people are, but the Christian kids are never sure. You know, okay. That's a very good point. Uh, and it goes, so it goes back to assurance of salvation, a number of things like that. And of course, I'm a Calvinist and I believe in election and I believe in the five solas and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But what was going on and what people tripped over is they didn't understand that we were talking, or at least I was talking about becoming a Christian at two in two different senses, mm-hmm. right? A person can become a Christian in the way that he's not a Buddhist and not a Hindu and not a Muslim. Mm-hmm. He was baptized in the triune name and joined a Christian church. Mm-hmm. That doesn't mean that that kind of Christian automatically goes to heaven, mm-hmm. but it means he's a, he's a part of the visible church. Right. Okay. okay. I see where you're going. Mm-hmm. So, all right. So that's one kind of Christian, part of the visible church. And then the other kind of Christian is the one who is regenerated, born again. If he gets hit hit by a truck, he's going to heaven. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, I believe both of those, I, I believe the word Christian can be legitimately applied in two different senses to both those circumstances. Mm-hmm. And for many evangelicals in North America, there's only one legitimate definition of a Christian. Mm-hmm. And that's someone who's going to heaven when they die. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. And so, yeah, I agree with that and pretty strongly. Okay. So, um, that's what the fog was created by. So that's what the federal vision was in my mind all about. Okay. Are you saying what, by, by doing that, by having two different ones, is that when you are young and you don't have the maturity to understand what you're believing in and what you're stating, then you're covered by you know your baptism. And then when you're older and you're mature enough to make that uh, statement uh, to the world that, that that you are a Christian, that that's a more mature. Yeah, I, well, I do believe that that happens. And, you know, if you're a paedo baptist like I am, and you baptize an infant, the infant grows up into his understanding of his faith and so forth. But I would say that it's it also applies to a reprobate skunk who mm. who wants to join the church and gets baptized because that's where the cute girls are. Right. It's like wheat you and tares, I mean? right? Like the wheat and the tares. Right. How Jesus Correct. said that they would grow together. So you're seeing that there there's some somebody yeah. could be labeled as a Christian, but yet they are a tear, but they're in the church. Right. right? So they're, Correct. They're, it's kind of like playing it's, the game almost. Exactly right. Now, but there's one additional thing to it, Uh, uh, and that is when this guy who's joined the church and is a member of the visible church um, is using it to make business contacts or or meet girls or or whatever he's doing, Mm -hmm. uh, I believe that he is abusing a real covenant between him and God. Mm -hmm. He, He is not aware of it. He despises it. But I think that he's guilty of an additional sin that some pagan outside the church is not guilty of. Right. He, yeah, okay. I see that. Yeah. All right. So that that's uh, it's sort of like um, I, I compare it to the marriage covenant. Mm-hmm. Let's say a man gets married 
and he has no intention of being faithful to his wife. He's already got plans. He's getting married for political reasons or business reasons or whatever. And, and let's say after 10 years of infidelity, God gets a hold of him and shakes him up really bad and he's converted. Mm-hmm. And let's say he goes home and repents to his wife and says, uh, you know, t- tells her everything, repents to her. And she says something like, tonight, I finally have a husband. Right. Okay. Now we know exactly what she means by that. Mm-hmm. She means now I have a husband in truth, mm-hmm. but he's been legally married to her for the whole time. Right. Right. Big difference. If, 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 but he, he, if he said, oh, you don't think I was really your husband before this? That means I wasn't cheating. Right. <laughs> yeah. I say, I've actually yeah. met people that say that kind of stuff. Yuck. Oh, <laughs> yeah, there's all kinds. Right. Yeah. No, you no, you were actually cheating. So I yeah. think a baptized <laughs> a, a, a baptized infidel is not someone who's gone halfway there. A baptized infidel is making a situation worse, mm. not better. Right. It's not a little. It's not a little bit is better than nothing. It's abusing this sacred thing. It is digging the hole deeper. I think. I think that puts you in a precarious situation where you have things like one member of a couple that wants to go to the church, and the other member of the couple that is going to church for that first person. Mm-hmm. Uh, I right. mean, if you press that issue, you're going to make that second person be like, "Well, then I won't go." Yeah. As opposed yeah. to just being civil and going and being nice to people and. Taking it in for what it is. It kind of puts you in a weird position. The don't try if you're not going to 100%, kind of a hard hard place to start from. Yeah, and I think the the Apostle Paul actually gets into that with the sanctification uh, in the marriage, you know, if you have an unbelieving wife or, you know, where you love them and treat them with total respect as if they were a believer and they're sanctified, you know, that God sees that. We're not going to force you into this, you know. That's no, but that's good. You're right. There is that side of it too. Yeah, it's a precarious situation. I think it's a tough love argument, and I never really excited about anything that goes anywhere near that direction. Right. So, if I may, I'd like to move on from Federal Vision and ask you these uh, some about your books. You do sure. a lot about the Christian family. I noticed that you, you yeah. talk about marriage. You talk about. I have not read Future Men. I'm assuming is that about living like a godly, manly life? Is that about on the men's God, side? No. It's- it's about raising boys. Raising, oh, okay. So child rearing of boys, yeah. and then you have a handbook on, you know, biblical child rearing. I mean that that's obviously something that was important to your wife early on about mm-hmm. where your children were going to be raised in school. But I guess you see that as something that's happening within our within the home. I assume. Yes. Yes. Very much so. Mm-hmm. So I would say in the the corpus of books that I've written, uh, books on family and education are one of the centerpieces of what we do. And this is, this is a, again, a quirky thing that I learned from my dad. He was not ordained in the ministry, but he was an evangelist and in Christian ministry. And there are four of us kids. I was the oldest of four. And we knew that if any of, any of us walked away from the faith or backslid in some egregious way, we knew that our dad would leave the ministry that day. Mm-hmm. Because First Timothy three and Titus one says that an elder's kids can't be wild and dissolute, so he just took that straight up the middle. Mm-hmm. He let the Bible pitch to him high and inside, and 
And so we knew that, and he, we, did, we didn't feel it like it was uh, manipulation or, you know, like him playing the violin. You know, mm-hmm. if you guys mess, if you guys mess up, then I lose my job. We, we just knew that he felt responsible for our spiritual condition, our spiritual well-being. And he thought that his qualification to be talking to other people about Jesus was whether we were walking with Jesus. Which is absolutely if, biblical. I mean, there it is, right down the line. Absolutely biblical. And the thing that's striking about it— I can't it imagine being is, raised, by, raised like that. Can you imagine, Not Jerry? at all. So that, I would have What a blessing. To. Yeah, I mean, what I a really blessing. I really would have. Because we, were, we weren't raised in households like that. What a blessing that yeah. you had in your father. That's amazing. Well, it, it is a I, blessing in the end, but I'll tell you, as a kid who wants to go to a football game and has to go to church that Sunday and is <laughs> crying to his mom, oh, my God, <laughs> mom, I got plans, and uh-huh. oh, no, no. Uh-huh. Oh, okay. So, yeah. so there is that side of it. Oh, yeah. yeah. That's yeah, where yeah. the rubber meets the yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it's, not, it's not like there's no pain. But, um, yeah. We suffer for but, Christ in here. Thi- yeah, but the thing is, <laughs> that was um, good. <laughs> the the invaluable thing about it is that all four of us are Christians. Our kids, all of our kids, my parents' grandkids, all of them are Christians, and I've got grandkids now. All of them are Christians, uh, walking with the Lord, and it's it's sort of just it's something that you. I could growing up, I could no more imagine walking away from the faith than I could imagine jumping over the moon. Hmm. It, it's just a, the, I'm sorry, that's just not done. That's not an option. Right. I have a question. If it's okay. Okay, go ahead. Uh, could you, for for our listeners, uh, explain presuppositional apologetics and how that relates to you know uh, traditional? I don't yeah. even understand okay. the question. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, it's a great question. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> well, you know, did you not read anything about him uh, before you came on? Trust me. I watched everything on YouTube. That's as good as it gets. <laughs> okay. In the last 20 minutes, he watched it all. <laughs> <laughs> okay, here, the, if you don't mind me doing it, this is the the elevator pitch description. Bring of it. The, all right, there, there are two main schools of apologetics, presuppositionalism and evidentialism. Okay. okay, and I'm generalizing here, so uh, please excuse that. Evidentialism wants to assume some sort of common ground with the unbeliever, whether it's science or history or logic or something like that, and they want to take the unbeliever by the hand and reason with the unbeliever from that shared common ground to the truth of Scripture. Mm-hmm. Okay, so the the apologetic task is to reason your way to the Bible or reason your way to a Christian conclusion like Jesus rose from the dead. I give you evidences, I give you arguments, I give you proofs, but all of them depend upon a shared commitment to rational argument and proofs and historical proofs and that sort of thing. So uh, a good representative of evidentialism would be Josh McDowell, Mm -hmm. evidence that demands a verdict. So here are the arguments and let's reason to the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Presuppositionalism seeks to reason from the scriptures. Okay, you assume the you assume the truth and validity of God's revelation in scripture and you reason from the scriptures and show that every other alternative is self-contradictory and that reasoning from the scriptures is the only coherent and sustained way to go. Hmm. So you presuppose the Bible in order to prove the Bible. Mm-hmm. Uh, the other is you presuppose some sort of common ground and try to reason your way to the Bible. 
Now, someone's going to say, but isn't the pre, isn't presuppositionalism begging the question where you're assuming what you need to prove? You know, I'm talking to a non-believer who doesn't believe the Bible is the word of God. How does it make sense for me to assume that the Bible is the word of God in my discussion with him? How, how am I not begging the question? Well, I would say when you're talking about ultimate issues, it's impossible for a finite creature to do anything but beg the question. Because I'm a finite being, that means I have a, I have to have a starting point, and that starting point is has to be handed to me. I can't prove everything. I can't prove all the first principles. If I could prove all the first principles, I would be God. I don't. I wouldn't be trying to prove God. <laughs> right. So when I'm talking to a non-believer and he says you're assuming the Bible's true and you're reasoning from that, I don't think that's legitimate. And I'd say, what well, what's your ultimate standard? And he says, he says something like reason. And I say, okay, what's your reason for doing that? Mm-hmm. Now, when he tries to give me a reason for doing that, what's he's doing? He's just opening his Bible, same way I open my Bible, mm-hmm. right? So he's presupposing he's a, from his his Bible. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah. He's he, he's appealing. Us. He's appealing to his ultimate standard, which he is simply assuming. He doesn't prove it, like. Where do you go stand to undertake the task of proving that there's such a thing as proofs? Hmm. You can't do it. So uh, that's how presuppositionalists think. Presuppositionalism says to the non-believer, look, your basic premises, what you're assuming about reality, do not give you the kind of universe that you're currently living in. Mm-hmm. Right? You, you can't get there from here. And C.S. Lewis reasons this way at the beginning of his book on miracles. He said, you can reason with a man who says that rice is unwholesome, but you need not reason with a man who says rice is unwholesome, but I'm not saying this is true. (laughs) So there you go, Ralph. Wouldn't you say that most people come from a presuppositional position? I think that all finite creatures reason presuppositionally of necessity, but some of them admit it. And, and that's probably out of the three that you mentioned, probably the weakest point to go from. Which one? Presuppositional. No, I'm a. I would call myself a presuppositionalist. Yeah, but he's coming from the Bible, which he considers the authority, right? Yeah. So yes. that that's his My, foundational. Yeah. Which right. you know, a, a non-theist would not have the Bible. He would have whatever his learned experiences are, or things that he's learned from whether it's an educational institution or whatever it might be. They've got something presuppositional. And then, of course, you do. Another thing that another thing that people say is that, well, can't you just pick the Quran or the Bible or what you know, whatever? Why why can't you just pick reason or the Quran or whatever you know? Roll your own. And the the problem with that, uh, Greg Bonson calls it the impossibility of the contrary. Let's say you've got four worldviews: A, B, C, and D, and C is Christianity. A and B, if you assume A and you reason downstream from A, and you get to not A, then you can dispense with that one. Mm-hmm. If you if assume B and reason downstream, and you get to not B, then you can reject that one. And Christianity is the only one where that doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So, for example, if I'm talking to Christopher Hitchens, who's a secular, materialistic atheist, mm-hmm. right? And he, he says the cosmos is just matter in motion, it's just time and chance acting on matter. Mm-hmm. That's his presupposition. Now, 
if that's the case, then I have no reason for believing his thoughts to be true, mm-hmm. including his thought that the universe is nothing but matter in motion. I'm sorry, I don't see the connection. Can you explain that to me? Sure. If, you, if I took a bottle of Mountain Dew and a bottle of Dr. Pepper and shook them both up and put them on a table in a big auditorium and got a big crowd there, and I asked the crowd, which one of these two bottles is foaming over is winning the debate? I they would say, see. okay, they would say they're not, de- they're not debating. They're just fizzing. Uh-huh. Okay. Now, if Christopher Hitchens' view of the universe is true, none of us are thinking. We're just fizzing. Uh, what's my, the difference? Uh, well, basically, my thoughts are simply what these chemicals in this bone box are doing under this pressure and at this temperature. Okay, so yes. Okay, which is fizzing, which means that fizzing. What, what, what but, gra- but you've just you've created two different definitions for the same thing. Fizzing and thinking. No. Yeah, same thing. Same thing. No, you, just, saying, you just look I, at one differently than you look at the other. You say this one, this one is yeah. thinking, and this one is fizzing. But both of them are just fizzing, and both of them are thinking because it is the same yeah. thing. No, no, they're both of them are fizzing, but both of them are not thinking. Oh, I don't see it. Seems okay. like the same thing so, to me. All right, so a resident uh, atheist, we, Mr. Wilson. Okay. Yeah, it seems, <laughs> oh, okay. it seems like it seems like the same thing. I don't see the difference because I do, right. I do believe you, that you can't change the future without changing the past. If that's a a good way to you, encapsulate things. But you, but you don't think that the bottle of Mountain Dew is thinking? Yeah, because it's fizzing. But I think thinking is something that happens in a head. So yeah, no, of but, course the Mountain Dew's no, not thinking. It's Mountain yeah, Dew. But, but fizzing. I realize it's a metaphor. Have, I just don't think it works for me. No, it's, it's, it's more than a metaphor. If you're a materialist and there is no God, it's not a metaphor. That's all the universe is. Yeah, but you're just calling fizzing thinking and thinking fizzing, and then you're making a delineation that only you have made. Sure, yeah. yeah. Well, it's just I, like you kick a ball and it goes forward. Yeah, sure, good enough. That, that's, that's right. But I have no reason for trusting a fizz. Yeah, you do. You know how to create the conditions that make that fizz, and you know under which conditions it will not be created, theoretically. And uh, sure, well, you can trust a fizz way better than a think. <laughs> way better. Because you can create a fizz. You can create a fizz anytime you want, man. Go get you the soda. Let me, let me change the illustration. If you spilled, if, if you spilled a, a jug of milk on the kitchen floor and your mom comes in and she says— I've done this. <laughs> okay. She, she says, who did this? The one thing is she's investigating who spilled the milk. The one thing she does not do is she does not ask the milk. It, the, it doesn't know. It's the accident. Okay. So, now, so if the if atheist if, spilled the milk, who do you ask? No. If who the do you bang, ask? You, if you have to go upstream, you can't ask the milk. And, and, and if there's no God, then a human cannot think. Then who do you ask? If there is no God, there's no such thing as asking. So there's no, you, there's no questions. Correct. I, I, I think All the only difference is just what you think, what you personally think. That seems to be the only difference to me. <laughs> no. So think of it this way. If the, if, if the Big Bang is correct, all that is is nothing but a debris field. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah, it's, okay. a, it's a pretty debris field in spots, but absolutely, sure. And we are part of the debris field. Sure. And— and as part of the debris field, 
You don't ask us what happened because the debris field does not know. Well, that's why people try to figure it out. What do you mean the debris field does not know? I mean, we're not debris. I mean, we are debris, but we're thinking debris. So you can't just, you can't just be like, (laughs) you can't just say people are rocks and therefore don't think. No, we're not rocks. We're not soda. It's not that simple. I know. You know know why, you know why it's not that simple is because you are created in the image of God. Yeah. I don't, that, that, that is not. What I I have a question. I have a question, Andy. Okay. Um, What is the difference between a debris field and you thinking? That actually might be the same. That's, see, that's see, that's kind of my argument is that it is. That but that's it is what I, the same. Well, that, yeah. it, well, that I think that's yeah. the point. Yeah, yeah. I think well, that's the point yeah, sure. is that if it's if the debris field and the thinking are the same thing, because in other words, we if you were going to try to impose meaning upon the debris uh-huh. field and the fizzing bottles and the milk and the moms and all the things, when you start imposing the emotion or the feeling to it. Now it's become something completely. It's not just information. Now there's it's added to. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I, I think I mean either exactly the right or wrong person to talk to this about about this too because I definitely am uh, like a determinist. Right. So when he says it's just fizzing, I'm like, yeah. No, and I and I and I see like I actually see both of your points. I know where he's coming from. I'm trying to bridge the gap here. Like, yeah. I don't know that we can. I'm trying to yeah, do it through evidentiary, so, I, <laughs> evidentiary <laughs> theology. <laughs> well, that one's not a strong point. <laughs> Let's no. go back to presupposition. That was good. And I, I, well, I think it was yeah. good because it Sorry, raised the question No, it's good. I just I only have five minutes no? left, and I want to ask oh, him a yeah, couple yeah. of questions, yeah. Sorry, and then we got to wrap it up. I'm sorry. That's okay. That's okay. Um, Thank you. Good exchange. Oh, yes. Yeah. You, you too, man. Love you. So, so we have this... Uh, um, this I don't moment. know why I said that. <laughs> See, this atheist loves as well. It's because of us. We got all this love in the room. You we're, seem very nice. We're rubbing off He is on a him. very, very nice man. Um, Christopher Hitchens is known. If you ever go watch any of his debates, he is he is ruthless in his speech. He's not ruthless to them necessarily as a person, but the ideals behind what they're bringing to the debate, he will rip it a new one. I have never seen anybody quite mm. like him, and I always loved that about him. He's like the Simon Cowell of the theology world, right? So yeah. brutally honest. And um, for me as a young Christian, you mentioned Josh McDowell earlier, uh, Mr. Wilson, and Josh McDowell was a personal hero of mine because, like I said, I was raised atheist, and I was given the book More Than a Carpenter. And when we went through the arguments of, was Jesus telling the truth? Was he lying or was he insane? That changed my life, and I thought it was amazing. And that type of apologetic really spoke to me. But whenever I saw you talking with Christopher Hitchens, the thing that used to get to me was like, I wonder what he's like behind the scenes, out behind the camera, when you two men were talking. You guys obviously talked a lot to put a book together. Yeah. Well, it's actually started with the book. So Christopher Hitchens wrote the book, God is Not Great. And mm-hmm. to his credit, he said, I want the re- I don't want to do a wine and cheese th- event in Manhattan for the release. I'm, I want to ch- challenge all theists of all kinds to debate. Mm-hmm. And I think he released it, began his book tour in Arkansas or somewhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, a friend of mine, an agent, saw this debate and wrote to Christianity Today and said, would you be interested in a written debate between Wilson and Hitchens? And they said, sure. So because of the challenge, uh, my friend Aaron contacted Hitchens and said, would you do this? Because he had issued the challenge, he said, sure. So we did this written exchange back and forth 
at the Christianity Today's website, which got a lot of traction. It got a lot of attention. Mm-hmm. And we made a book out of that. Okay. So we, uh, Canon Press published the book uh, with uh, Hitchens' um, contributions in mind, just like uh, as it had appeared online. And then when we released the book, we, um, we did a book tour together. So mm-hmm. our book tour release was New York, Philadelphia, and Georgetown. And there's a camera crew that went along with us. Was that Darren Doan? That was Darren Doan, right? That was Darren Doan. Uh, so he made the, the documentary Collision from those three days of the mm-hmm. book release tour. And then I did a, a few other things with uh, Hitchens after that. But the, basically, you can get glimpses of this in Collision. Hitchens was never rude to me except on stage. So mm-hmm. on stage, it was like being in a prize fighting ring. You know, he would go for the jugular and he, basically he didn't play beanbag on stage. Mm-hmm. But off stage, we got along famously. It was just it was just a good good time. We shared meals together. It was just we hit it, it off. It, it, yeah, it seemed that way. And my, one of my favorite parts of the movie is when you were both quoting P.G. Wodehouse, which I had never heard of. <laughs> yeah. And so my wife bought me the entire P.G. Wodehouse series. So I'm in oh the my. midst of this now. I want to learn those one-liners. They're fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> they were. It was so funny. I was like, what are they talking about? And they were laughing. So I guess you both were fans of Wodehouse. And uh, that just came much, together. Yeah. And, that clicked. I forgot I forget who brought it up. But it was thing it were things like that. And also at the same time, I'm friends with Christopher's brother, Peter Hitchens, who's mm, okay. a who's a believer. He lives in Oxford, and my son-in-law got his PhD, uh, his DPhil at Oxford. And so we would go uh-huh. over to visit the grandkids. And we met up with Eve Hitchens, went to the same church my my kids went to. And so we met them that way. And so friends with the Hitchens family. Yeah. And and I'm assuming that Hitchens um, went to his death kind of in the same position. He held to that position. Am I right? Yes. But if I, if I could share something about that, after he was diagnosed with that cancer, yeah, uh, I wrote, this is a longer story, but I, I, I wrote him an email. We have plenty of time. I'm just holding the time to you. I'm sure you're okay. a busy guy, but <laughs> I can. I've got enough time to finish the story. I guess. Okay, great. So I talked to my father, who is a like I said, a very gifted evangelist, and my dad suggested I approach it this way, which I did. So I wrote him an extended letter that laid out the gospel, and it was personalized for him only. Okay, basically mm-hmm. for for Christopher's eyes only, and. Uh, laid out the gospel in detail, and then I attached it to an email. And in the email, I said, "Christopher, I'll have no, I have no way of knowing if you open this attachment or not. I just wanted you to have it. Uh, I, I wanted to make sure that you had this in your possession. I think you'll be sorry if you don't read it because there's some really good writing in there. And you know, sort of right. did it that way. I'm." Uh, confident that he opened it and read it. And part of the reason for this is, again, my dad taught me that non-believers go through three stages prior to becoming Christians. The first stage is, if I became a Christian, would I have to become, uh, no, excuse me, the first stage is, 
uh, I'll never become a Christian mm-hmm. or you won't, you won't convert me to your kind of Christian. I'm not, I'm not going to be a Christian. Quit, quit trying to convert me. And what that tells you is that they've been thinking about it. <laughs> the, mm-hmm. the, right. The, the thought has crossed their mind. And then the second stage is if I became a Christian, would I have to give up drinking beer or would I have to become a missionary or would I have to, if, if, if sure. it's a condition, it's a conditional. Then the third stage is when I become a Christian. Well, mm-hmm. Christopher, by the time he died, was at least at stage two, mm-hmm. right? Because he sure. was at he was asked in public interviews, "Hey, with this diagnosis of cancer, the fact you're going to die, uh, have you rethought this God thing?" And mm-hmm. his answer to that was quite striking because he said, "If you hear that Christopher Hitchens has called out to cried out to God on his deathbed, then you should know." that the cancer got to my brain or right. that <laughs> he did. He did. He's bru- He was so honest, man. And yeah. brutal. Okay. Or that the meds got to me or something. But what that tells me is that he was concerned about it. Hmm. Right. Sure. And, and he was concerned about it enough that he was preparing a story for his fans, for his followers who would have been deeply grieved if he had, um, become a Christian. Also, I think that this is what was behind his approach to, uh, to uh, challenging everybody and anybody to a debate on the release of his book, because I believe that he had questions and he wanted to hang out with Christians. Mm-hmm. But given his position in the secular ruling elite, Christopher Hitchens can't suddenly start having lunch with the archbishop. Um, right. Because... <laughs> Because that's going to excite comment. People are going to say, hey, what's Christopher doing with the archbishop? But if he challenges everybody to a debate and he travels with Christians, he hangs out with Christians, he hung out with me, you know, we we spent time together and he spent time with other believers. Mm -hmm. I believe that the, the, the debate tour gave him the camouflage that he needed to talk about some of the questions he had. I believe he was a closeted questioner, mm. right? Sure. Um, but that's the, that's the most I can say. Sure. And, and, and even then, uh, if it was a private moment between him and the Lord, then so be it. You know, uh, right. I think God is able to do whatever he determines to do, no matter what. Right. Um, I have uh, I have one more question. Um, also, okay. at the end at the end of this recording, if if that would be okay, could I have like one minute of your time? I want to close out, and then I just want to say bye properly, and if, if that's yeah, okay sure. with you, yeah. So, sure thing. Um, does anybody want to ask Billy's question, Cherry? Why don't you ask Billy's? Billy's not here. He always asks the same question at the end. Would you like to do that, Cherry? So, typically, Billy usually asks everyone, "When you die on this side of eternity, where do you go?" So what happens when I die or when what happens when in people general, die? Or? In general. Yeah. Um, what, what happens whenever you die? Yeah. Personally. Okay. So Paul says in Corinthians that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Okay. Mm-hmm. So when you close your eyes in death, you open them and you're with the Lord. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't believe, I believe that intermediate state is prior to the resurrection of the body. So the Christian, the ultimate Christian hope is not the immortality of the soul, but rather the resurrection of the body. So my body goes in the grave, but I'm with the Lord immediately. 
looking forward to the time whenever your soul will be reunited with that body in the resurrection. Right. Correct. Okay. That's what. All right. That, that was very similar to what I think Josh Sexton said. So yeah, if I can get you to hang on after this, let's just close out. Uh, I really appreciate it so much that you were here on our show. It means a lot to me personally. And uh, I, I know that the two that weren't here were very upset about it. Oh, oh there's been a hubbub, sir. <laughs> yeah. Hey, can you say, can you say, hi, Sarita? Hi, Josh. Hi, Sarita. Hi, Josh. Bam. Sorry you I, missed- <laughs> I hooked you up, guys. How about that? Yeah. They, and, um, but it really means a lot. Thanks so much for being on the show with us. Yeah, happy to. Yeah, and Cherry, Andy, Ralph, Thank you. Rick, everybody. Yeah. I appreciate you being here. What oh, a great man. episode. I've this been looking awesome. forward to this for months, Ooh. right? Yeah, super excited. I drove excited. all day for this. Thank yeah, you very much. He drove four hours to get up here just to be a part of this, so oh. it's awesome. Oh. All yeah. right. Well, guys, we will talk to you again next time on the Burrows of Berea. Peace out. Later. Hey guys, this is Rick from the Burrows of Berea. Do you know how much blood, sweat, and tears it takes to make a podcast? None. But that doesn't mean that it doesn't cost a lot. And so if you guys don't mind, if anybody would like to give to help us with these episodes, it would be great. We'll put out even more content. And if you go to our Patreon page, just search for the Burrows of Berea, you'll get extra notes, extra episodes, and it's pretty much free. A dollar gets you a lot. Thanks, guys. Hey, everybody, it's Andy, uh, abusing my powers to make a small post. Uh, in editing this, I realized it sounds like I'm contradicting myself at some points when we're talking about fizzing and uh, thinking. And it's because when he's talking about fizzing and thinking as being equal in the way that they're both processes that are predicated by input variables that can be controlled and adjusted for, though you can't possibly know all the input variables that are going to thinking, uh, then I agree that they're basically the same. But when he starts to make it an argument that they are literally the same thing, then I disagree because they're not literally the same thing. They're just alike in that first way. All right. Thanks. I'm touching my shirt.